Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This is unique, and it's unique because we are going to make everyone who participates in this a citizen scientist. And we are going to send out, along with the permit and the tag, so you apply you get drawn in the lottery, you get a permit and a tag. You have to put your tag on your fish when you harvest it. Then we were requesting that you submit data to us just like you do with deer. So if you're going out on a deer hunt, you're gonna report, uh, not in this case sex, but you might for deer, um, size, location caught, a bunch of other bits of information that is useful for Bob and his research to understand the fishery better. And then we're also gonna request a clip of the fin. And we're gonna provide the kit to clip the fin, store the sample, and mail it back to us. And then we're going to use that in part of our genetic studies to better understand the number of individuals that are in the fishery and the diversity of the genetics of the stock. This is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website is tomrollandpodcast.com, and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done. 
both the How To Tuesdays, the full links, and the Physical Fridays. They all live on TomRolandPodcast.com. And the social media is Tom underscore Roland, R O W L A N D, on Instagram. Or you can go to our big account, Saltwater underscore Experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now let's get on to today's show. Okay, we have an exciting podcast today, all about the Goliath Grouper. I know a lot of people are very excited about that. I have Erica Burgess and Dr. Bob Ellis, both of the FWC. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Erica, why don't you tell us what your what your responsibilities are? Well, thanks, Tom. I appreciate you having us. Um, my responsibilities are in the Division of Marine Fisheries Management for FWC. I'm the section leader for analysis and rulemaking. And my staff includes all the regional biologists who are spread throughout the state to engage with recreational and commercial anglers. We cover all state waters fisheries. So think redfish, snook, sea trout, scallops, and lobster. That That's the purview of my shop. Okay. All right. And Bob? Dr. Fish Counter on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Um, hi, Tom. Hi, Erica. Great to be here today. Um, so I am a research scientist with the Fish and Wildlife Research Institute. Uh, I work at the headquarters in St. Petersburg. Um, then we have field offices all around the state. Um, I work in the Marine Fisheries Biology Group. Uh, so our job is to study biology of the marine fish that are under the purview of FWC. So that um, within FWC, we have a bunch of different groups doing research. Our job is really to fill in gaps anywhere there's a biological question about a species. So we end up doing a lot of life history, um, age and growth type of studies. Um, and we, uh, we've been increasingly getting into habitat science. So looking at where fish are, um, where, what types of habitats they use, um, and then where are they moving to? So we do a lot of movement ecology. We do so we were heavily involved in acoustic telemetry where we tag fish. We listen to where they move up and down the state. Um, so a lot of different, a lot of different aspects to our job. That's fascinating. What, um, if you don't mind, just before we get started on Goliath, what, what fish are you um, acoustically tagging uh, and studying right now? Sure. So we have, we have projects going on tarpon, snook, um, looking at juveniles, um, those were using the telemetry to tell us, uh, we're tagging juveniles in, in sort of retention ponds and in their upland sort of habitats. And we're using the acoustic telemetry to tell us when they're leaving those habitats to egress into the down estuary. Um, we have a couple of studies looking at, uh, juvenile goliath groupers inshore, um, other species like, um, sheep's head and, uh, spotted sea trout to look at. Um, those, we have some studies going on in the Indian river lagoon to look at how, uh, water releases out of Lake Okeechobee when those, when that water pulses down the St. Lucie river, how do those fish respond to those changing, uh, fluctuating conditions? Um, we're also using acoustic telemetry to look, uh, to try to assess discard mortality in hogfish offshore. Um, so we know that increasingly hogfish are being caught during the wintertime, especially on hook and line. Um, and so we're trying to, to figure out, um, you know, if a undersized hogfish gets thrown back, how often do those survive? So we actually can use those, those pinger tags. Um, and we have some that have a pressure sensor on it and that can tell us where in the water column that fish hmm. is. 
Um, and so we can see, you know, when we release it, did the fish just lie on the bottom dead or did it resume its normal activity? Um, and then most recently, we just started a big uh, three-year cobia um, project in the Gulf of Mexico looking to see um, as cobia move up the, the west coast of Florida, are they sticking around year-round? Are they moving? Um, what proportion of them are moving, are migrating, you know, to the western Gulf? Or, or back to the keys and vice versa. Hmm. So we, we, we do a lot of acoustic telemetry. Yeah, I, I really, um, I'm interested in the acoustic telemetry because I did this other podcast with, um, with FIU, the, the scientists hmm. there, and they were doing this Jack Gravel study and they were talking about how that they got a ping from um, Louisiana and that all, you know, with the internet and everything, you're getting pings and, and that, that wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't know that that was happening before the internet because all of these things are all tied together. I thought that was fascinating how that's happening and, and um, the, the different types of, of information that we can learn. When you do those studies like that, like all of that stuff, I'm sure half the audience is like, man, I'd love to get my hands on that. Does that ever become public, that, that information? Uh, it does. So um, you touched on the the these uh, cooperative networks that we have. Mm -hmm. So there's one in the Gulf of Mexico called ITAG, um, and then there's one up for the for the Atlantic coast um, called FACT. Um, we're members of both groups, and basically, yeah, it's it's a cooperative group of scientists. And and the way the technology works is um, uh, I put out a receiver that can listen to any tag that's made by that company. Right. So I might be listening for hogfish, but I'll pick up, you know, I'll pick up the cobia that we tagged last week. You know, I'll pick up, um, I actually just got some data last week. We got sawfish coming out of the Everglades wow. um, up here off, offshore of Tampa Bay mm -hmm. at some of our receiver stations. And so I know that those tags don't belong to me and these networks help us get in touch with the scientists who tag the fish and then we get them the data. Um, <clears throat> So one thing that we're doing actually in the FACT network is we're, we're, we've been working on this tool um, to get the data more accessible to the public. Um, one of the issues with some of this data is that there's a big time lag. So for example, the receivers we put out on off Tampa Bay, we only, re, we only need to get them once a year. So, um, you know, we just picked some up last month. Those might have detections from you know, February of 2021, mm. right? And so that, that those detections don't get to the tagger, you know, until more than a year later. And then they've got to figure out what to do with them. Usually that means writing a paper or going, giving a presentation. So at the FACT network, what we're trying to do is, is um, we've automated a lot of this data sharing um, where you upload everything to a node and then um, we, we, we can use, um, algorithms to match everything up and send basically just send a spreadsheet like hey here's all the here's all your detections and what we're going to do is as people sign up for this visualization tool we'll actually pull it directly in so twice a year we'll update all of the detections that we have and then you'll be able to go species by species and look to see where different wow. different things are moving so we're hoping to roll that out later on this summer um, and I can, I can definitely let you know when that, yeah, when that that'd be cool. I mean, I'm, I'm just, 
I'm fascinated by the the movements, like even that Jack Cravel that that goes all the way to the Mississippi River. You know, it's just mm-hmm. I, I don't know. You when you're out there fishing, you're like, you know, I wonder where this fish came from. I wonder where it's been. Especially when you look at something like a tarpon or like a obviously very old fish. Like, what has this fish seen in its lifetime? And you just get that little bit of data that that helps you to kind of understand that. Um, well, that's that's really cool. I look forward to seeing that. So. The purpose of today's show is to talk about the Goliath Grouper. As many of the audience knows, and and you both certainly know, and and were instrumental in this in some way, shape, or form. There, at one point, the Goliath Grouper was totally open. If you go to the old Keys restaurants, you see these pictures of giant Goliath Groupers. People would would eat them. They were called Jewfish back then. Then they something happened. And there's basically a moratorium on the fish, no fishing for them at all. And then as of late this year, in fact, there is a new season. And I'm not, I'm not sure if there's ever been another season between the time that it closed. That's one of my questions. Um, and then there is a, 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 I don't know what you would call it, a trial season, a small season, a permit only season. There's a, there's a limited season on Goliath groupers for a specific size, for a specific number. And that's what I want to get to today of how kind of what goes into that. So um, does anybody know the history of the, of the Goliath and the regulations that would be willing to share? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll launch into this part. So from the 1950s and the 1980s, Goliath grouper were targeted both commercially and recreationally. The recreational fishery picked up in the 80s more so. And during that time, the fishery became overfished. And it was so severely overfished that in 1990, FWC said that we need to close the fishery to harvest. And they were followed by both the Gulf Council and the South Atlantic Council. So FWC could control the fishery in state waters, which is from zero to nine miles in the Gulf, zero to three miles in the Atlantic. And then beyond that, out to the international waters line, which is typically about 200 miles, the councils had authority and they shut down the fishery there as well. And they did it with uh, just the fisheries at a point where we cannot sustain harvests, And so we're going to close it. Um, there was no goal for what would happen when we reached point X or mm-hmm. point Y. Um, there was no discussion about when this moratorium would end. So motor- moratorium stayed in place for a while. And then there were a few stock assessments that were conducted to try and determine the amount of rebuilding that occurred. Because during the closure from 1990 till today, the population slowly started rebuilding. And um, unfortunately, those stock assessments, which uh, Bob might be able to talk to a little bit more, but they didn't pass their peer review. So a, a peer panel of scientists looked at it and they essentially said, you don't have enough information to really say what's going on with the stock. It wasn't bad science. It just wasn't enough science. Mm-hmm. And um, so the fishery remained closed. Beginning in 2017, the FWC commissioners wanted to understand where the fishery was at. And they came to staff and said, what's happening with this fishery? Should it still remain closed? How's the population doing? And that's what led us on the trajectory to today. And that's kind of a, a fast jump, but not much for management occurred between that closure and this year. Mm-hmm. So what is the, the, the beginning of the decision to consider a season? So first it's just asking questions and um, some of the research Bob does and others do help us to 
answer those questions or provide some information. And um, we got to a point where we realized that we will likely never be able to do a traditional fishery stock assessment. So hmm. we had to set new new metrics, but um, knowing that we're not going to get a, a traditional assessment done doesn't mean we can't answer the question of whether harvest could be sustained. And so that was the question to staff. Can harvest be sustained? Okay. And so, the decision. Oh, go ahead. The decision yeah, was no, possible. And the response was, it's possible uh, at a conservative level at this point, we could consider a harvest. Okay. So Bob, tell us about the, why, why a traditional uh, um, census, I guess, couldn't be taken on this fish. Sure. Um, so the way that the way that a traditional stock assessment works really is that it takes a bunch of different types of information and it tries to resolve what all those different data streams are telling you. So you can get you get information from the fishery itself, from the commercial landings. Um, we can estimate recreational landings. Um, this has been uh, yeah, somewhat uh, of um, it's undergone a big change in the last few years to try to improve how accurately we assess the recreational fishery. Um, but basically you kind of have the, you have a trend in time of how many fish are being landed. Mm -hmm. And then we can also do some other things. We have uh, fishery independent monitoring, both here at FWC, we conduct these and also NOAA fisheries does as well. Um, this is basically scientific fishing. So instead of saying, right, one of the one of the issues of just using the fishery dependent, relying on the fishery to tell us what the trends are, is that fishermen get better over time, right? GPSs have gotten better, <laughs> outboard motors have gotten bigger, we can access more fish, we're better at getting to the exact same spot over and over in, in time. And so if you just rely on those trends, it might tell you that everything's fine, even though you're increasingly targeting a smaller population of fish. So we also do this sort of scientific sampling where we use scientific principles to spread out effort um, equally and conduct the same sort of fishing effort year after year. And then we use the computer models to resolve those different trends in time. We also know about the biology of the fish, so we know something about how long they live. We know something about the age structure of the catch, right? So at every couple of fish that come into the fish house, you can have somebody pull out an otolith mm -hmm. from the ear bone from the fish, and then we can actually, we can get an accurate age. So we know, you know, the age structure of the population out there, and then we can use that information to figure out, all right, if there's this many fish of this year, this is how many eggs they produced. So this is how many new fish we would have in the next year. Mm -hmm. um, and so we use those different data streams to one, help us sort of resolve where we think the trend in the fishery is. Is it going up? Is it going down? Is it stable? And then we can use that biological information to predict the next couple of years. Okay, if we have this many fish, we understand about their biology, we can predict that they're gonna make this many fish and we can take this many out of the population for the next, usually it's three years at a time, that's about how that how the timeline works for that. Got it. So a fish like a a a really regularly harvested fish, a snapper, a, a tuna, something like mm -hmm. that, you're going to have tons more data ton, available to you all over with, with a fish that's completely catch and release or absolutely no kill. 
that none of that data is available to you. That's that's what I'm understanding, right? So exactly. you have to, you have to so, choose a different way to assess the 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 exactly. numbers. We don't have landings data. We don't have any. There's no fishery, so we right. don't have any of that fishery data coming in. We do have some biological data. That's sort of our job to do, right? So we understand about the reproduction. We we understand about their age and growth. Um, but and we have a little bit of information coming in from um, from other alternative sources. So we actually have one of the better ones for Goliath Grouper is the Everglades National Park Creel Survey. Hmm. Um, that's been going on for a very long time. Um, and that's, that's a pretty robust data set, but it only tells us about the juvenile population. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, we also have some diver data. Um, we use the reef, uh, environmental education foundation, their diver data set, um, which we think is pretty robust because I mean, you know, if you're diving on a wreck or a reef, you know, there's a life there mm -hmm. with you. They're pretty <laughs> obvious. Um, so we think we can rely on that data as well. But the problem is, is that this data can only really give us a relative estimate of where the population is. Mm -hmm. So up until that moratorium, we could get an absolute number of using, using the traditional stock assessment metrics. We could, use an, we could get an absolute number of how many fish we think there are and then predict how many we could take. As soon as that stopped, that kind of, that went away. And so we can only rely on where we think we are relative to that point. Mm -hmm. um, based on the data that we had in 1990, we estimated that the Goliath population um, was down to around 5% of what it was before we started fishing for them. So pre-1950s, before we started collecting fishery data, um, <clears throat> that kind of unfished condition of that fishery had been depleted by 95%. That's a very serious amount and that was that was why we we decided we needed that moratorium mm -hmm. um, because sustainable fishing just wasn't possible at that point what we've done since is we've done a couple of stock assessments and we've looked and we've been able to say relatively relative to that five percent we've re the population has recovered um but we can't get an absolute number so we can't say all right you can take a thousand tons next year Gotcha. Right. Like we can gotcha. with something like Red Snapper, where we have just absolutely tons of data and we can be pretty confident that, all right, if we can take this many fish out next year. So we know the population is doing better. We just don't have the ability to say we can we can sustainably remove this many fish hmm. and be super confident about that that's the case. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I assume, and maybe this is not true, but I would assume that the that the initial question posed to you of it can we take any fish out and could that be sustainable? I'm assuming that that is probably brought on by um the public saying, wow, there's really a lot of Goliath groupers here. They're eating all my fish. Uh divers are saying, wow, there's there's there used to be one here. Now there's 12. Um I don't know. Is that is that where something like that starts? Where where some where the question of of a, a season might start there, or am I wrong? So certainly, public interest played a role in this. Yeah. And um, as the population rebuilds, the number of interactions between anglers and Goliath groupers is going to increase. Um, and it was that increase in interaction that. Um, angered a lot of anglers. Mm -hmm. They feel that they're in direct competition with Goliath grouper. Right. Now, Goliath grouper eating all the fish on the reef, 
The science doesn't really support that statement. However, those interactions where Goliath will take advantage of a fish on a line is occurring and it's occurring more frequently. Sure. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, that obviously you're going to have anglers that are going to speak out. You're going to have divers that are going to speak out. I mean, in a positive way, in a negative way, either way, bringing attention to the fact that there are more or less of, of a certain species and that might, that might start the questioning of, well, are there too many? Are there not enough? Can we, can we take them? And that's kind of what I thought that maybe the public public might've started with that. The Goliath grouper is an interesting fish in this way. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's, it's kind of a hot topic is because the divers love them because it's an absolute home run. If you take somebody diving, you go down there and you see this fish that is literally as big as your car that you have sitting at home in your driveway, that's a home run. That person is never going to forget that. So all the dive operations, they want the Goliath groupers there because if they, that's all they got to do, show them, show somebody a Goliath grouper and a few other fish and it is a home run and they stay in the same place. And great. I get it. I understand. They want them. Then the fishermen, you know, the same thing is happening here. You take someone out they're they're getting a fish of a lifetime and boom, it gets eaten by the side of the boat. And then the fishing is fantastic and boom, the next one gets eaten by the side of the boat. How many, how long do you sit there and fish and feed these Goliath groupers before you have to move? It makes their, do- their job more difficult because they found the fish, but now they can't catch the fish. And so the, they get angry. The other people are happy. That for, makes for a controversial, <laughs> that makes for a controversial fish. Some people want them. Some people don't want them. So I w- my, what, what a lot of people have asked me about is why would if if there's so many of these big ones, why would this season open with such a small size? And I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure that it's based upon science, but I know that that's what a lot of people want me to ask is like, if it seems like we would go after these giant ones, but then there there's, what is the limit? It's 20, 24 inches. Is that right? What What is the... 24 to 36. Okay, 24 to 36 inches. So can we talk about um, how how that size was determined and also the number that, that we're planning on uh, allowing this year? Sure. So there was a straw man proposal that was put out in 2017. And so I can compare that straw man to what we ended up with today. The straw man was for 100 fish at a larger slot. And we've got feedback on that. There was interest in, in focusing harvest on a smaller size fish to prevent now, the removal of the large. I'm sorry. Can I? You, you say you got feedback on that. So is that from the public or from from other scientists? Or what kind of feedback are we talking about? Uh, from the public okay. and from right. our commissioners. So okay. we held, I believe, it was like 17 public workshops around the state in 2017. We had multiple commission meetings. People wrote in comments. Um, I'd say the amount of input on Goliath grouper from the public uh, dwarfs any other species I've worked on with the agency, for sure. And um, we took in all that feedback and we thought about not just the people who want harvest or don't want harvest, but what are they saying about, about the fish that could be harvested and what are our management goals as an agency? So we know that in order to keep rebuilding the population, we need to have as many of those large spawning adults as we can in the population. We're also trying to fill out the top end of the age structure. And so we need older fish to do that. Because right now, I think Bob 
what what age are we estimating they go to in the population right now? Um, so again, we have sort of limited data on this, but um, <clears throat> the the population definitely appears to be somewhat truncated towards younger ages. So um, in theory, you know, the Harvest Moratorium started in 1990. It's been, what, 32 years. So it's possible that we have some really big old ones out there in the population. Um, <clears throat> the oldest fish, I believe, that we've aged um, since 2007. It's a relatively limited data set again, but that fish was was I believe just around 30 years old. Really, most of the fish that we end up getting um, getting otoliths for, um, uh, we do have a program where we collect basically anytime a goliath grouper gets reported, a dead one gets reported to us, mm -hmm. we we send biologists to that fish to get as much um, data as we can. Um, and and again, the data suggests that really we're looking at we don't have a whole lot of older, large, older fish in the population, not as many as we'd like to. Um, and so that's part of the reason, part of the reason that Erica was, uh, was mentioning. Do we have any, um, any data that might come from other sources? Like, uh, I, I know that sometimes these fish are in aquariums, uh, how long they've lived in this aquarium or, uh, maybe some old scientific samples that would show that a Goliath grouper lives to like what the record age that we've ever seen or we think a Goliath grouper would live to? Yeah, so I believe the oldest one that we've aged was 37. Oh. Um, that was from a fish that was a pre-moratorium fish caught from the late 80s. Um, we actually just, um, uh, unfortunately, the, the uh, Cletus, the Goliath that used to live at the Tampa Bay Aquarium, uh, the Florida Aquarium mm -hmm. uh, passed away about a year ago. Um, we were able to age him, um, and it came out basically what we expected. We, they uh, he was late twenties, I believe. Really, um, but we kind of knew that be based on how old we think he was when they got him and how long he'd been in the aquarium. That's for. funny, man, because those those fish they just when you see one, even a small one, you're like, this is this looks like an old fish. I mean, they just look like they are old, but I mean, mm -hmm. compared to a tarpon, not that old, you know, like right. 37 years old. That's half the age of a, of a tarpon, maybe of a full grown tarpon. What, what is the full length of the, the oldest tarpon that we know of? Ooh, I, I'm not sure, but I, I'm Eric, do you, do you know? <laughs> I, I've just heard, you know, they're, they're like pretty old. Know. Like It's in the fifties, I think, right? Fifties. I would think even, even a little more, like, like 60 or 70 years old, but I have no idea, really. I'm just off the cuff, but they, everybody always talks about how old tarpon are. And I would think that, you know, a 400 pound Goliath grouper leads you to believe that that fish could possibly be older. But what you're saying is maybe, maybe not. Maybe they just grow a little faster and they get big, really big. Yeah. I would say that's just one of the fascinating things about fish. So, how old do you think a 18 inch triple tail is? I think very young. One Eight, year. 18 so inches. 18 inch. Okay. So yeah. Then and that that's a fish that looks, you know, old. Like it you you get a triple tail, that looks very old. A mahi, on the other hand, yeah, they they look they look they look pretty young. And I and I know that those that's one of the fastest growing fish in the ocean. Um, so you know, even a big mahi, a twenty pounder, is not very old at all, right? 
Yeah, so they can grow the, the average, like the max age we'll see in the fishery is four years for mahi. So those bull mahis, if you come across one, it's likely only four years old. Four, right. The longest that they can live, we think, is seven to eight years. Wow. But most of them don't reach that age because they're harvested before then. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they are. Um, that everyone, everyone likes, everyone likes those. Okay. So let's, let's go to the, um, to this, to this specific number that was chosen for, for the Goliath grouper, the size of them and number. I see you're trying to protect the larger fish. So what leads you to this specific slot limit that was, was chosen? So the, the slot limit based on, um, wanting to protect the oldest fish, but also about concerns related to mercury. Mm. So 24 to 36 inches. We know that Goliath grouper, just like any other long-lived, large-bodied marine animal, will accumulate mercury over time. So same as other large groupers, same as tilefish, same as uh, mackerels. So that was an additional consideration for the size limit. Okay. That's I, I certainly didn't consider that as a as a as a consideration of why why that would be chosen, but makes sense. And then why the two hundred? So, so, like Bob said, we don't have a stock assessment that can tell us you can safely take this many fish, and you're not going to threaten continued rebuilding of this fishery. So, based on the life history of Goliath grouper. They are late to maturity um, and uh, long-lived because the abundance indices that we have from the uh, different surveys that Bob talked about, um, we put that information together and decided that a conservative number that would allow some harvest without threatening rebuilding would be about 200 fish within this slot limit. So the size of the fish, affects how many you can take. So if you're focusing on younger fish, you can take four. If we were to have a fish tree that targeted the larger fish, the number would be much less mm. that we'd be able to harvest each year. Okay. And um and then then there's a there's a cost associated with the I mean this is like a permit, like a hunting permit, right? So mm -hmm. how do you how do you decide on the cost of it? So um this is unique and it's unique because we are going to make everyone who participates in this a citizen scientist. Okay. And we are gonna send out along with the permit and the tag. So you apply, if you get drawn in the lottery, you get a permit and a tag. You have to put your tag on your fish when you harvest it. Then we were requesting that you submit data to us just like you do with deer. So if you're going out on a deer hunt, you're gonna report, uh, not in this case sex, but you might for deer. Um, size, location caught, a bunch of other bits of information that is useful for Bob and his research to understand the fishery better. And then we're also going to request a clip of the fin. And we're going to provide the kit to clip the fin, store the sample, and mail it back to us. And then we're going to use that in part of our genetic studies to better understand the number of individuals that are in the fishery and the diversity of the genetics of the stock. Hmm. So... Part of the fee is going to pay for all of that analysis. Okay, and Bob, the um, there would be no reason to to have a, a disposal site for the for the head, so that you could get the bones, the otoliths out of the out of the head, or you've got a really good idea of 
the age of this particular size fish or why, why would that not be something that we would try to get? Yeah. So, um, it, it, in terms of the odalis, it's not particularly valuable to us. Um, there's, uh, a 36 inch fish. Um, I was just, while Erica was talking, I was looking up to see, looking up the age curves that we've generated. Um, that fish is anywhere from, uh, based on our data, four to seven, eight years old. Um, so there's some variation there, but that's not particularly useful for something like a stock assessment. It's really, again, we're really more, we're really paying attention to the bigger, older ones um, to look to see that we're getting those, those older fish in the population. Um, I would say that um, one thing that could be useful, um, it's come up already, is the is a diet study. Um, besides just physically looking at what's inside the fish's stomach, we can also do something called stable isotope analysis. So we can take a plug from of the muscle tissue and we can look at the relative ratio of different elements um, in that muscle tissue. And that can tell us something about where the fish eats on the trophic chain. Hmm. Um, so it's like where it is on the food web. Um, we're pretty, again, for this size class, we're pretty knowledgeable about what's going on. Uh, 36 inch fish is right about when, um, when the majority will leave the estuary and move out to the reefs offshore. Um, <clears throat> maturity happens probably a year after that, a year after that move, that egress from the estuary. Um, anywhere between 120 and 150 centimeters. Um, so again, in terms of biological data, these, we don't think that these are reproductively active fish. So we're not, you know, we, we won't be able to get estimates of fecundity or anything like that. Um, so, but, um, the genetic, the genetics is really where it's at. Um, we're attempting, um, to answer a couple of questions right now with genetics related to Goliath Cooper. One of them is just to kind of take a, take a look at the genetic diversity that can tell us something about that kind of relative baseline, right? Um, anytime you shrink a population down to 5% of its sort of uh, carrying capacity, you really need to start worrying about genetic diversity. You can start getting mutations that persist in the population that are, that are not beneficial. Um, and so that's something that we've been looking at for the past few years. And, and the data that we have on hand suggests that, that diversity is continuing to increase. And it's at a point where we, we probably don't need to worry about it. We've kind of moved through that bottleneck, um, which is one, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a one thing that helps us make the, the determination for a harvest, right? Um, we're seeing positive signs in the genetic diversity of the population. Um, the other thing that we can do if, if we can get, get this a suitable number of samples is that we can actually do what's called a close kin mark recapture analysis, where we're going to get a number of these juveniles from this harvest program. Um, we have some other programs where we're collecting the same information from adults. And then we actually try to match up parents to offspring. Really? And if, and if we know how many samples that we had of each group and we know how many matches that we made, we can do some pretty complex maths to back calculate how many adults there needed to be in the population. Hmm. So it's an alternative way for us to get at that absolute abundance number. Um, it's going to be a little bit difficult to get there. 
um, sampling, the sampling we're going to need is quite high. Um, <clears throat> this harvest opportunity is going to get us part of the way there. Um, and then we're working on a number of different ways to get us the rest of the way. Um, and it's going to take a while. It's going to take a few years, um, at least three years of collecting all this data um, each year. So it's a pretty big task, but um, but we're we're gonna try. So the the data that you're collecting on the adults, you said you were collecting some data on the adults. Is that fin clippings, or what what are you getting from them? And is that from recreational anglers or just scientists doing that? Um, it's both. So we have uh, scientists collect fin clips. Um, we actually have a number of uh, charter guides in the catch and release fishery that help us out. Um, we can um, we can get get uh, um, anglers on our special activity license to actually be able to land the fish to fin to get the fin clip for us. Mm. Um, and so we've been doing that for the past few years um, to kind of answer those genetic diversity questions. At the same time, we use that data to kind of calculate how much, how much sampling do we need to do in the future um, for this close kin project. Um, so, um, so yeah, we're, um, so it's it's a lot of citizen science, basically. Yeah, with that program, are you you want fin clips from any size fish? Or are you targeting like you want somebody to catch really big ones, or somebody to catch little ones, or just whatever you above. happen to catch? Yep, all then, of the above. Are they providing you a fin clip and like an overall estimation of the size, either on tape mm -hmm. or you know like this big? <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a huge. Yeah, one. I mean. Uh, um, as a scientist, uh, basically what I tell these guys is the more information you can, you can give me the better. So if you've got, a if you've got a tape measure in centimeters, I'll take it. If you, uh, pull it up to the side of the boat and use the kind of the stickers on yeah, the side right. that estimate it was six feet long, that's fine too. Same thing with location. If you want to give me your honey hole, like I'll take it, man. But otherwise <laughs> four miles out John's pass, right. It's, that's fine too. Um, uh, but yeah, and, and so, and so similar, do people have to, do people have to apply to be in that, in that program or what do you need to do? I mean, I'm sure there's people listening to this. It would be like, well, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to participate in that. What would you have to do to participate in that? Absolutely. Well, you'd actually just have to get in touch with me. Um, okay. so I, I don't know if we can work out a way to, you mentioned my Instagram. That's probably not the best way, but, um, <laughs> well, you tell me what, and I'll put it in the description and, and get ready. People yeah, are going to call my, you. My email, robert.ellis at my.uc.com. Okay. Um, but generally, um, we we're trying to focus on people who, who kind of are more active in it. Um, if you're catching one or two a year, um, we'd love to have your help, but we're really after people that are catching, you know, 10 to a dozen, um, every few months. Mm -hmm. um, which there's plenty of people here in the state of Florida who that who fall in that category. So, um, yeah, we can use all the help we can get. That's fantastic. Um, because the, you know, like, I mean, even from a even from a, a a fishing perspective or a perspective of someone that wants to see the fishery open, the only way that that's going to happen is more data. Is what what I'm hearing, and and it makes all the sense in the world. We don't have the data coming in from commercial fishing we don't have the data coming in from harvest so you got to get the data somewhere to be able to make a, a scientific decision on whether or not you can take more less whatever so as we as we kind of embark on this season with these 200 um what does the what does the future look like what has to happen 
for there to be an additional, you know, another year of 200 or could next year be 400 or could like, what is, could the size be larger? What does it look like in the, in the future from a, from a management uh, perspective? So I won't pretend to have a crystal ball. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say after this first season, we're going to evaluate how the program went, um, p- potentially tweak some things such as what do we want folks to report, but um, we'll take this for right now, one year at a time. And we're purposely being conservative. We're opening up a fishery that's been closed for 30 years, 32 years. It was fished down to 5% of, what it was before. So we were celebrating the fact that we're here where we are, we're able to reopen this fishery, but we want to do it right. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good um, description that you're celebrating that you're opening the fishery because um, I, I think that's exactly where it is. Like a species has to uh, rebound to a certain place in order to, to sustain harvest right and and that is to be celebrated like this fish was literally kind of like the buffalo out west or the bison where it was so low there were just individual you could count individuals and now it's back right so that's fantastic and and that is um really really to be celebrated i think um that they are back now how does something like um you know the 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 fish kill that happens um uh, on the on the west coast it was you know terrible uh the okeechobee kind of situation that 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 has a has a potential of of happening how does that play into um the decision like do you like obviously everybody saw on instagram the the pictures of giant goliaths washed up on the beach you're saying that that scientists went to those fish and and got whatever data they could get but when you're when you're thinking about, okay, well, we're only going to take, you know, 200 fish this entire year. And then you have an event like that, where obviously lots of fish were, were, were killed. How does that play into continuing to go forward with this plan or deciding, Hey, wait, maybe nature just did the work for us here and we need to reassess. I mean, where, at what point do you, do you look at natural events like that and kind of make that in? as a part of the uh, of the equation so one of the things we track and we mentioned a few times are these surveys that look at um whether it's the reef survey or the creel survey in everglades national park that provide us a relative index of abundance and we can actually see how natural events cause changes in those survey results so there was a cold kill event that caused a huge drop in the time series. And then it came back up afterwards. So we can see these things happen. Um, But as far as how we're gonna respond to things that happen um, maybe one year out or a few months before, um, we are responsive to things that happen in the environment. I think the best example to show it is the catch and release uh, regulations that took effect for parts of Southwest Florida following the 2017 through 19 red tide for snook, redfish, and sea trout. So we do have the ability to use executive orders to revise regulations in between times, but 
um, until an event happens, I can't say how we're going to respond. Mm -hmm. Understood. Um, yeah. Same thing kind of happens, you know, out West when the rivers get too hot. And all of a sudden they just put what, what they refer to as a hoot owl restriction onto the rivers. Like it's just not safe to catch and release. So can't even fish or you can only fish between these hours. Um, and, and that, that the FWC has that authority, right. And you could, you could make these changes anytime based upon whatever you deemed like necessary. Right. Yeah, it's not our favorite way to manage fisheries. We don't like to be reactive, but we we have that avenue open to us. I gotcha. I gotcha. Bob, let me ask you uh, just some a couple of questions about the Goliath grouper, um, just because I think they're just a really cool fish. And you find them in really shallow water and you find them in really deep water. And, you know, sometimes there's big ones in shallow water and little ones out in deep water. But for the most part, you mentioned that there is a size and it's about 36 inches where they're going to leave the, the inshore areas and move off to the offshore areas. Can you tell us anything about um, where these fish are, are, are spawning or born and how, how they're getting into these shallow water areas? I mean, are they, are they spawning in a way that they're washing the eggs into into a shallow water area, or like what's the, what's the life cycle of a Goliath grouper look like? Sure. So um, spawning happens in the fall, late summer, early fall. Um, generally, the new moons of August and September tend to be the peak. Um, they, you know, they really like these uh, high relief structures. So. A lot of times nowadays that means shipwrecks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we talked about the whole, the, the diving opportunities, especially on the East coast. I mean, I've done it before. It's absolutely incredible, you know, jumping in the water and swimming up to a wreck and seeing a hundred fish bigger <laughs> than you yeah. is something, you, you know, and, and Southeast Florida is, has become an international destination just for those experiences. Yeah. Um, and so, um, on the flip side of this, it, it makes the fish very vulnerable to overfishing because they aggregate in predictable ways at predictable times of year. If you wanted to, um, you could go and collect a hundred adults, mm -hmm. right? You just go out September new moon, you know, right where the fish are going to be. Um, and, and that's, that's in some part, what, what kind of happened to them. Um, and it's a very similar story for other, other grouper species. Nassau grouper is the, is the classic, right. Um, where we have just massive overfishing occurring because of the biology of these fish and the way that they aggregate in predictable ways. So they spawn on the new moon, those eggs, uh, um, take about, uh, 24 hours to hatch. And then the larval fish will drift for about 30 days. Um, at that point, um, what I think is super cool. And I actually learned this when I, when I started at FWC, I happened to be talking to an, a, 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 um, someone who studied mostly estuarine fish. I, I did a lot of grouper work offshore for my dissertation and we happened to be chatting about this. And, um, you know, we were talking about, the timeline of all of this, right? So they spawn at the new moon of September and 30 days later, it's king tide season in South Florida. And so you have the highest tides of the whole year flooding the mangroves. And that's when those larval fish are drifting into the mangroves and settling out. Um, 
which I just think is the coolest, yeah. coolest little story of evolution. Um, and so then they're, they're basically um, obligate to those mangrove nurseries, um, at least for that first year. You probably won't see one until it's about a foot long, um, probably hiding back in those flood, flooded mangroves. Um, and then they spend the next, um, again, five to eight, could be three, three to eight years um, before they hit about that meter long size. Um, some of the data that we've been collecting on the inshore movement um, suggests that the egress happens after a cold front. Mm. Um, so we've seen this four or five times now where um, a cold front comes through, the water surface temperatures dip down, um, and then a, you know, around a three foot long fish with a tag in it all of a sudden appears offshore. Mm. Um, <clears throat> And then at that point, um, you know, they're, they're going to be mostly offshore again, something that we're, we're continuing to learn is especially on the West coast. Um, it could be a function of the distances involved, but you know, we do tend to get some big adults that are coming back and living in the mouths of the estuaries. Um, again, there tend to be high relief structures there, bridge pilings and things like that, that they love to hang out on. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and then, you know, so they'll, they'll live offshore. Um, these things are generally pretty resident. They don't move around a whole lot once they kind of find that home structure that they like. Um, again, the movement data tells us this, um, I've got colleagues that, um, you know, they, they know when one of my fish has moved into their site because all of a sudden they have a little bit of data. They had a little bit of data on their receiver and now they've got pages and pages and they just send it all to me because one of my fish moved in. <laughs> um, so they hang out. Um, once they mature again, anywhere between that kind of, you know, four to five, what's 150 centimeters is about five feet long. Mm-hmm. Four and a half, five feet long is probably when they start to mature. Um, and then they'll start making migrations at that point. Um, some of the acoustic telemetry data suggests, again, that might be tied into the lunar cycle as well. We start seeing them move kind of in that uh, July time period. Um, <clears throat> they start to get some cues from the from probably te- water temperature and lunar cycle that, hey, it's time to go find a spawning aggregation. Um, some of the fish that we tagged on the East Coast move quite far. We had one fish um, five years in a row. It, it, uh, it's kind of home reef was up in Southern Georgia and it swam all the way back down to Jupiter to those spawning aggregations um, each year. Um, So it was there, and it was there predictably, right? It was there in time for that August new moon. Do we have um, other other fish? I mean, is that, could that just be an outlier? Are there other fish that show big movements like that on the West coast or like anywhere else? Um, Those, those those really big movers are probably outliers um, because we had a handful of fish that we tagged in that same project that never left the Jupiter area. Hmm. So they were just year round residents. So what does it mean? Why is it that one fish, you know, swims 400 miles a year and the other one swims four miles a year? Uh, I have no idea. (laughs) Um, uh, Just a pretty cool aspect of their biology. Um, We do have some some movement data from the Gulf suggesting um, similar movements up 100 to 200 miles to, to swim from sort of central Gulf, Florida down to sort of offshore Naples is where a lot of the Gulf aggregations tend to be. 
um, which again is sort of the prime location that, you know, if you're a, if you're a piece of plankton, it probably takes you, it takes you about 30 days to go from, you know, 50 miles offshore of Naples to uh, a 10,000 islands mangrove, flooded mangrove. Hmm. Um, yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, that's super so yeah. cool. And those fish, um, I, I just find them really interesting that they go from, you know, being really small like that, probably eating shrimp and, and the ones that, that we see around the mangroves, they are crab eaters. They, they're yep. a lot of crabs and, and lobsters and small, small lobsters and stuff like that. Then they go to basically eating anything that'll fit in their mouth. Um, they love permit. Um, and they're, and they're big and they're hard to eat, you know, that it takes a big fish to eat a, to eat a permit like that. But just, you were talking about where they sit on the food web. And so when they're, when they're small, they're probably lower on the food web and then they, they, they kind of increase. Can you d explain, explain that a little bit? Sure. So, so this is a, this is kind of a tricky point here is because this is where some of our scientific information tends to diverge a little bit from a lot of anglers experience. Um, we have, we have direct evidence from actually reaching down into stomachs and pulling out what they've been eating. Um, that suggests that, you know, fish, reef fish, the groupers and snappers particularly, um, play a pretty small part in their overall diet. Um, you know, somewhere around like 10 to 15% <laughs> on, you know, across the entire life cycle, their diet is dominated by crustaceans. So you mentioned, you know, the, when they're in the mangroves, they're really eating, they're focusing on crabs. And we hear that we talk to the crabbers that, you know, talk about how the little ones follow the crabs out in the mud flats and end up in their crab traps. Right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Uh, and then they move off and then they grow up and move offshore. And what we found is in those offshore adults, the thing that we pulled out of stomachs most often were um, shame faced crabs, box crabs hmm. um, that are demersal. They bury themselves in the sand away from the wreck um, or away from the reef out in the sand. And that's sort of the Goliath's natural food source is that they will move out into the sand flats and actually hunt for buried crabs. And they're um, and they're like tailing like a bonefish or like like bashing into the bottom to to get this buried crab. I've never seen it, but I would imagine that's what it looks like. Hmm. Um it's interesting that that you know with so many divers and and so many people around these fish all the time that and especially like somebody like you would not have seen that behavior before, but I mean I can tell you that you're, you're throwing a, a crab up against the, the mangroves to try to catch a redfish and you catch a Goliath grouper. They eat them. I mean, they, they really eat them and they, they like them. And when they, when they come in, they cough up all kinds of other crabs and they like right. crabs. And it's not, that's no surprise, but I didn't know that they, they would hunt those buried ones. Yep. And um, in addition, we find a lot of slow moving fish. So burfish spines, so many burfish spines in stomachs stingrays, um, occasionally a turtle. Um, what the, what, what we're really, what we really don't find is, you know, swift moving fish, something that can swim away. Mm -hmm. Um, these things really aren't high level predators. They're not a tuna chasing down a mackerel sort of thing. They're opportunistic. So they're eating whatever's the easiest thing for them at, you know, Generally, if you're at a wreck with nobody fishing on it, 
that buried crab that's not going to swim away from you is probably the easiest thing to eat. Mm -hmm. When a boat shows up and starts fishing and starts throwing back undersized mangrove snapper, for example, and that fish is trying to swim back down to the reef, all of a sudden, that little fish is the easiest thing to eat. Mm -hmm. And that's where we start to get into this, um, these negative interactions, right? Um, and because these are resident fish, because they don't move around so much, fishermen tend to fish the same spots, right? And that's sort of a recipe for, for disaster. We get, you know, more and more of these negative interactions where you see people, you, you said it yourself, feeding the Goliath grouper. Mm -hmm. Um, and Again, it's this weird intersection of sort of like the biology. They're really just, they're opportunistic. They're trying to eat the easiest thing and we're, we're serving it up to them. Um, <clears throat> we're pretty sure we can be, you know, this on the science side, we're pretty sure that, you know, our stomach content analysis is, is pretty spot on because we've backed it up with the stable isotopes. And um, unlike a lot of fish, you know, something like, um, a gag grouper or a red grouper maybe is a better example because they actually kind of switch. They, they increasingly, as they grow larger, they increasingly eat more and more fish. And so if you look at sort of their place on the food chain, it kind of ratchets up as they get larger. The Goliath is pretty stable because again, a blue crab is on the same, is in the same place that one of these shame faced crabs is on that food, food web. And so if that's your dominant diet, then, um, then you're not going to change that much through your life cycle. And that's what we see is we see the adults having a relatively low um, place uh, in, in that sort of trophic food le level um, based on the stable isotope analysis, which backs up, you know, the data that we're, that we're pulling out of the fish's stomachs. Hmm. Um, so with a fish like a, a Goliath, would you have any idea of, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a big fish has a big body. You would think that, you know, if it eats a 10 pound Jack Crevel or a, or a, or a 10, 20 pound permit or something like that, you know, that's a nice snack for a fish like that. But I don't know. I mean, is, would a, if, if a, if a fish like that gets a meal like that, or you, you see them, you see the same fish eat three or four, you know, mm -hmm. big fish, is that, is it going to feed the next day? Is it, is it, does it burn that up real fast? Because if it's a fish that eats primarily crabs, you would think that maybe the metabolism was a little bit slower. And if it got a really big meal, like a permit or a, or a big snapper or something like that, that maybe that would hold it over for a couple of days. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wish I had an actual, a, a, a number, right. That I could give you, but in general, they do have a lower metabolism than something like a gag group or, mm -hmm. or, um, a tuna, right? A little tuna that's swimming around constantly. Yeah, right. Um, um, yeah, I, I don't, I can't give you an exact like, Oh, it needs this much and then it'll just take a break. Um, but, um, my, my guess is that, you know, if it eats a couple of fish from a fisherman, um, you know, it's, it's probably not going to, not going to go hunting that night. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, you would think that at some point, sometimes, you know, you think, well, how many fish can it eat? But then there's multiple yeah. fish down there and they all kind of look the same and they're all about the same size. So, yeah. I mean, maybe they are just eating one and going away. And then, 
I mean, but you know, the divers would know more because they're actually keep their eyes on the fish. One, once it disappears out of view, then the next one comes up. It looks very similar to the last one that came up. Right. Who knows? Um, but that's really cool. I, I think that, um, I think that w- this is a, a good direction. I'm glad to see any, anything reopen, um, you know, because that, that shows the public, I think g- it gives a lot of confidence from the public that, that those are considerations that science and management are thinking about. Like, it, and I love to hear that you you call it a celebration. Like we're we're celebrating that we're opening this up. Which you know, for for the fishermen, you, you never. I don't know. I mean, if you don't really pay a lot of attention to it, you don't know if like oh they closed it and and they they just don't think about it anymore, or if they closed it if there's ever a chance to reopen. And and I just think that this is a a milestone and some people were kind of upset about it. And I, th- I thought, you know, from the get go, I was like, I think this is a really good thing that, that they're at least opening it and at least trying that shows me that, that this is a topic that is of interest to both science and management. And, um, I, and, and it's not just, you know, put locked away in a closet somewhere and nobody ever thinks about it again. So I, I think that's great. And I commend you for, um, for doing that. And, um, and hopefully the, uh, data that we get from this and the, and the reaction from the public and is, is such that it continues in my opinion. I I think it's, I think it's good. Is that the reaction that you get from most people or is it really mixed? We get mixed reaction. Um, (laughs) we get people who are in the same spot as you. We get people who are on the ends of both poles, um, we are never ever going to make everyone happy. No, but yeah. Is that the most frustrating part of something like this is, is, or do you, is that, is that a, is that even a consideration or do you just go based on the science and you just make the best decision that, that, that the science shows you and, and that's just the way it's going to be or where does public uh, uh, opinion or public sentiment lie there? So um, public opinion is a, major factor into the commissioner's decision-making. So we have a body of seven commissioners who are appointed by the governor who um, are entrusted with management of our resources. And as staff, we advise them, we bring forward recommendations that are based on science. We go out and gather the public feedback. We also propose options that might be in line with science and public and try and, and get to the sweet spot if we can. But there's such a range in diversity of opinions, the sweet spot might not suit everyone. Um, Ultimately, though, we're charged with the conservation of the resource. So that's not just the resource for today, it's the resource for tomorrow and the future. And um, our commissioners are passionate about that. But I cannot give a presentation to our commissioners without them asking me, so what does the public say? Mm -hmm. So what the public says is really important to them. And they want to know that we've gone out, we've talked with stakeholders, we've tried to find a solution or a scenario that meets what people want and what the um, resource can support. Mm-hmm. So. Well, great. I think it's, um, I think it's gotta be a hard job, uh, both as a commissioner and as staff and as a scientist, I think that, I, I think it's a hard job. And so, you know, thank you for doing it. <laughs> all, all of you. Um, thank you for doing it uh, because the, the resource, you know, we're, we're very fortunate in this country to have such an incredible resource uh, both on land and in the water. And that doesn't, 
that's not an accident that that happens. I think that it could easily be be fished out, be hunted out, be be uh, overdeveloped to a point that we didn't have wildlife. But we're incredibly fortunate that we have so much, and and I believe that that is uh, because of because of good science and good management. So. Thanks for that. And really thanks for coming on to the show today. I know that a lot of people had just tons of questions and this may be just the beginning of them. And maybe we can do this again. If, uh, if everybody, uh, sends me emails and, and asks, why didn't you ask this question or that question? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just trying to have a conversation and learn, learn a little bit about this myself, but I really appreciate you, uh, coming onto the show and being open and, and, uh, answering all the questions. So thank you. I appreciate it. If people wanted to, um, I don't know, send you an email, uh, Bob, you put out your email address. If people wanted to send an email or they wanted to get in touch with you, is there a way that they can do that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, Erica, well, there's you a, go first. A, there's a general email, email you can um, send, and that's marine at myfwc.com. So M-A-R-I-N-E at myfwc.com. Contact, contact us that way and we'll get your question to the person who can best answer it. Okay. Awesome. And Bob, you put out your email address already. If you want to do that again. Sure. It's um, my name, Robert.ellis at again, myfwc.com, myfwc.com. Okay. And um, yeah, happy to answer questions directly or, you know, if you send them to that Marine one too, Erica knows how to get in touch with me. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much for this conversation. I, I learned a few things and I'm sure other people did too. So thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I hope we can do it again. Thanks, Tom. Okay. Thanks, thank Tom. you.